0: Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of Evoking History. This week, I am joined by an adjunct professor of history at Keene University. His focus is on American history and specifically genocide scholarship, where he seeks to promote the recognition of genocide in the Western Hemisphere, especially that against indigenous peoples, Michael E. Carter. Thank you for joining me, Michael.
1: Thank you. It was a, it was a pleasure. We've you've had um, we've had mutual friends, or you've had mutual friends of ours on, and I, was, I believe I was name-dropped a couple of episodes ago by our, our good friend Trey, so it sort of seemed to naturally progress.
0: Um, so like, I guess I have to be here at some point, so here I am. Well, I'm certainly glad you did. Yes, uh, Trey mentioned you when we were talking about uh, our shameful legacy of treatment of indigenous peoples of the Americans, of the Americas, I should say. What initially got you interested in this topic, if you don't mind me asking?
1: Okay, so this is sort of this is a very long story, and it's a story that I think I've teased on Twitter. And I say that if I have that many followers, I've, but I've mentioned it. But if you want the entire story, I'll give it to you. It's um, the reason I do what I do is because of Glenn Beck. Interesting. Yeah. So going back all the way to my. High school days when I was an idiot. Um, I said I'm still not an idiot. But um, I, for whatever reason, when I was younger, just became um, conservative. And I, and by by that I mean, I would literally come home from school, hang out, turn on Fox News channel, and then just pretty much spend their from their 4 p.m. block to probably nine o'clock so the next, like, four or five hours of their, of their, whatever you want to call it. Um, it was slightly Probable. more... Repeatable. It was slightly, to be completely honest, it was slightly more reputable than it is now. Um, and by slightly, I mean, like, a notch on that. But, and I'd watch... Um, that, and it wasn't like it was like, I wasn't like indoctrinated, it wasn't like a family thing that we, it was just something that I fell into for who knows what kind of psychological reasons. Um, I watched pretty much every episode of Glenn Beck's Fox News program the day that it aired, give or take. And because I'm a historian, I looked up and, you know, I got the notes on this, so that would have been... His original show ran from January 19th of 2009 to June 30th of 2011. So roughly a very short span. Um, but that's why when people say, you know, what were you before you became a sort of secular, progressive kind of liberal? I said I was a Glenbeck Tea Party conservative. Because I was into this stuff on the ground floor. I saw... You know, pretty much in real time, the conspiracy theories that are now, you know, 10 years later, you know, still blowing up that particular poisonous part of Twitter. Um, you know, your, your tea parties, like the tea party started in February of 2009. So you're going to get a lot of this stuff. Um, so I was into this and. There is an and I wasn't able to get the exact episode date because no one tracks day-to-day episodes of of news programs or you know opinion programs on cable news channels. But I was able to sort of frame it at some point in August of 2010. Um, Beck did an episode which can only really be described as him building this case against quote-unquote progressives, which was if you know anything about Glenn Beck at this time, with basically anyone that wasn't a conservative historically, and if you could link them to some sort of, if you could link them back to Wilson and some sort of conspiratorial web of, like, spider web, uh, they were a a progressive and they were in danger to the country. So he was laying out this case about, you know, progressives are responsible for the murders of the Native Americans. I'm pretty sure he actually said that at one point, which, but he has this episode where he's talking about you know the dimensions of the pyramids and the dimensions of the Ohio or- a lot of it is pseudo-archaeology uh, uh, and a little bit and dashed a little bit with his, with his faith he's a, he's a particularly um, conservative or, or orthodox uh, member of the church of Latter-day Saints so he has certain views of I, I am not a uh, Mormon I'm not a historian of that history but I'm taking very broad strokes here but I'm watching this episode and I didn't, like, at one point he talks about, like, he makes the references, like, a lost of visual. I didn't buy any of that. Like, I was historically literally enough where I was going, like, this doesn't gel. But what I did realize, um, a weird kernel in this, was when he was talking about the Ohio Earthworks, My something tripped in my brain and I went, wait a second. This is what, you know, it's not true necessarily with the mound builders, but like there were people here, obviously, but that they had societies and civilizations and cultures of value that were destroyed. So this, this is tied into a couple other stuff that was going on in my life. But if you ask, why do you focus on the Americas? A part of that is because I was, I was a dopey sort of indoctrinated conservative teenager who sort of one day a particularly infamous commentator is like, hey, this looks like Egypt. And I go, hey, you're right. And that's sort of the or, like the weird origin story of that particular interest. And it's a story I'm pretty sure no one else had.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, mine doesn't match up entirely with that, but I can certainly sympathize. Um, I grew up in a fairly conservative family, And I can remember my grandfather listening to Rush Limbaugh back in the late 80s, early 90s. And so that pernicious voice was, you know, in my understanding of things. Now, I didn't go back to university until 2008. And during that time, I never was really indoctrinated into the Fox News like some other members of my family were. But I can certainly understand that you have to unlearn certain um, conceits of American exceptionalism if you are going to take this history thing seriously. Oh, absolutely. Um,
1: I and I will at no point claim that this was something that I did myself um, just by because again, this is this is high school so really, I really should have because I always forget when I graduate high school and I go back into the math, but whatever. So I was saved, and I use that term, that is not hyperbole, um, by a particular um, high school teacher who I met by sheer accident, and whose class I ended up with by sheer accident. Um, Because apparently I ended up in sophomore honors for history, and then I just, the grades just slightly wasn't good enough, and the, the teacher... Said, no, keep him. He's good at this. Keep him. And the, the, the administration said, no. <laughs> but so I ended up back in a gen history class. And this gen ed history class was taught by a woman named Mrs. Rosemary Wilkinson, who is one of the three major women in my life who I say saved my life at certain points in time. And she was the person that introduced me to genocide studies, that introduced me to genocide outside of the context of just the Holocaust and that sort of got the ball rolling and it was what I can only describe as a sort of cognitive dissonance that came out of that because I, I was in a history class and then I ended up the next year I took um, a genocide studies class which is ha- like half a year um, well I guess you call it a semester but it was high school so I don't think of it in those terms um, sure. and then the cognitive dissonance part was like, okay, so genocide is bad, obviously, but I have all these other quote unquote sort of traditional beliefs. And I'm sitting there going like, well, homosexuality is wrong when I'm sitting over here and going like, well, but I can't, I can't treat them badly. So it, these were the kind of conversations that are going on in my mind. And then I just said, well, you know what? I can't engage in this kind of thought process. I can't be prejudiced against these people, whoever they are, because my brain wasn't even like clocked into the the gender identity um, aspect of any of this. And it was really fairly early on for that to be more public, at least from what I remember. Um, So that, so I'm having these discussions in my head and then I said, you know what? Well, that's what has to yield. Like, I, I can't, I, I cannot pretend that these political beliefs that I used to have are more important than the humanist values that I've developed. Right. So that's, that would sort of shift um, to uh, more liberal thinking. Because I was like, no, I, I don't believe that there is a, I don't have the right to judge you. Um, certain groups of people based on sort of a Bronze Age standard. Um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So that's sort of my historian origin story is sort of woven directly in with a personal growth and a moral growth and a political growth, I think.
0: About uh, how long did that process take? Because, I mean, you've made it sound like uh, what well, is roughly an academic year, so a year of high school. I,
1: I was... Hmm. I clocked that. Um, the sort
0: of uh,
1: Glenn Beck pseudo archaeology episode, like August of, of 2010. Mm-hmm. I voted. Well, my first presidential election that I could vote for was, um, was 2012, and I voted for Obama over Romney. So a year plus, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, and if you want to, you know, and my when I that was that's about four years after I started to have this sort of shift. Um, the stuff in high school was obviously ongoing, or the sort of internal thinking was ongoing when I saw the Native American stuff on Fox. So it was that like I kind of told it in backwards order, but it was it was just one of those things where you were where I was like, okay, I can't continue. I have to make a choice, and I think. Um, That's my equivalent. That's sort of my sort of moment where that sort of clicked. Because I know I know Trey tells the story of him picking up the the sort of Abraham Lincoln book. I think it's at the school library or whatever, and that yeah. changing the whole course of his direction. We all have little um, sort of origin stories of how we ended up where we are. That's really mine. Um, the the reason I became I did history is because, you know, I'm terrible at math. I I couldn't do science. Like, five-year-old me was like, I want to be a science teacher. And then high school me was like, we can't do math. We're doing social studies. (laughs) Um, But this this was sort of how I
0: came to be really who I am. Right. Um, So. Uh, Let me add as an aside that my first presidential... Uh, campaign that I was old enough to vote for was Clinton's re-election campaign in '96. So, way to make me feel super old. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, but um, it, was, it was. And actually, and it was kind of it was. And again, I my parents my parents weren't really that political. My father was not a huge fan of Obama, and he's actually kind of still a Trump person. But that's mostly because, ironically, in the time that I sort of faded out of that sort of fuck in his bubble he slipped in but I'm just kind of like dad please for the love of God I was literally there I know what I'm nah I'm like okay whatever uh, but I actually spent a, a couple a while I don't remember how long just lying I was like yeah I voted for Romney yeah whatever I was <laughs> mm-hmm. <That's laughs> so just right. here but it was that's
0: that sort of my origin story I think I've said that like three times <laughs> okay. These things are very important to us, uh, these defining moments of our lives, so I I completely understand. Now, I find it very fascinating that you had a genocide studies class in high school. Where did you go to high school?
1: I went to high school in um, Hazlitt, New Jersey. I went to Raritan High School in Hazlitt, New Jersey, Um, and they just had one. Um, She retired, so I'm not sure if they still do. And if they don't, I mourn for that because that I definitely don't know the logistics of how or why uh, it ended up. You ended up getting your sort of uh, two marking period or or a semester long chunk of class time, but it was it was just a history elective. Yeah, and it's actually the only class ever that I've gotten the perfect score on. Because as far as I know, everything's going as it Um It was really nothing special about. Um, the high school. It was just like yeah. we have this teacher who is like a big uh, she's a big part of, you know, the local um, sort of genocide studies, Holocaust studies sort of atmosphere and she's big on anti-bullying and anti-prejudice and and it just sort of clicked. Um, Monmouth County, New Jersey in general has, and it has had for a while, I think since McGreevy my grieving might have been the one that signed it, had a mandate that you have to teach the Holocaust, and they have a, a, a other genocides that you can teach in the curriculum as well. Um, and Monmouth County, where I grew up, where Hazlitt is a part of, um, has a network of a lot of um, this stuff particularly. Um, as And so does So New Jersey has this sort of atmosphere of genocide studies or genocide education and I was just lucky by sheer coincidence to tap into that vein at a a crucial point in my life and then I said yes this is what I want to do I decided much to numerous members of my family's you know chagrin that I was going to get the master's degree that I currently have in high school yeah So they're like, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you apply to this college? Or why didn't you do this? I'm like, because I know what I want to do. I know what I want to do. I know what I want to get. Now, there's part of me that now looks at the sort of realities of academia and goes, "Eh, it would have been slightly more helpful if I got a master's degree in history. But especially when, you know, but I am like, this is what I decided. I was like, I want to be a genocide scholar. That's and I want to have a piece of paper
0: so that I could say I am a genocide scholar. So I take it then that your master's degree is actually in genocide studies.
1: Yes, my master's degree is in Holocaust and genocide studies.
0: Okay.
1: And where Um, did you get that? I got that at Ken University, my my current employer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I got they have a what we would call the Mags program, which is the Master of Arts in Holocaust and Genocide Program. It's it's actually a It's a great program. I love the program. Um, Because of the realities of funding and the origins of the program, it is like a 90% Holocaust-centric program. So I was an Americanist in a program not designed for Americanists. So it was sort of like, it was interesting. Like when When I got to take my electives, I took Latin American Genocide and I took Native American Genocide. Pretty much everything else was um, Holocaust or, or anti-Semitism, which I, I loved and I adored, and I still have all the books for somewhere. But it was one of those things where I'm where, like, this is the degree I want, but I'm not necessarily a Holocaust scholar.
0: Right. Um, it's very interesting to me because um, – I have done quite a a significant amount of research into genocide as well, although I don't consider myself to be a genocide scholar. And how I kind of came into it was when I was in getting my bachelor's degree, I took a class from Dr. David Pizzo, who was my first guest, and he, of course, did his PhD at North Carolina working with Christopher Browning, the the author Mm -hmm. of Ordinary Men. Um, so he ha- he taught, uh, Dr. Pizzo taught a course on the Holocaust, but then he also had a genocide course that we took. And so it has been a foundational point of, of my education as well, even though I don't, unlike you, I don't consider myself to be a true scholar of genocide.
1: Well, genocide studies, like every other studies is, is, um, interdisciplinary. So I'm just ha- I'm just a historian that happens to be p- coming at it from a historian's perspective. My degree was taught by history department, so I argue up and down, and I will argue up and down until the damn sun explodes that I have a master's degree technically in history because it was taught entirely by history department. Uh, but I, you, you're. Um, Well, you do state violence in the 20th century. That's your focus. Mm -hmm. So you can't talk about state violence in the 20th century without talking about
0: Nazis and the Holocaust. Oh, without a doubt. And even even moving it forward, there are several other things. I mean, I can remember when I graduated high school in 94, it was right after the, the genocide in Bosnia and Rwanda. So, I mean, it has been not only part of my historic thinking having been born in the 1970s looking back at the holocaust and not knowing about all the horrendous stuff that we were supporting in latin america during the 80s but then the two active ones in the 90s so i mean it is always it is a political and physical reality of the world that i grew up in yeah It's, um, well, and it's really, it sort of shows the
1: importance of, I know you don't consider yourself a a genocide scholar, but let's say, as both of us are historians of mass atrocity, that might be a a good way to put it. No, I agree. I think we have a shared, a a mutual uh, responsibility to recognition where we say, you know, look, you have to understand, not only that this happened, but that, like every other event in human history, there is a rip, a, you know, to break it down to, like, basic, you know, grade school social studies, there is a cause and effect here. Like, you know, if you want to look at, like, the examples that I think about sometimes, um, you know, the... I can't give you an exact location, but I'm sure there's enough of them, but you are you have these sort of soccer fields or whatnot, these open fields in, you know, Eastern Europe and you can go like 10 feet off of the soccer field and you have a mass grave yeah. that, you know, surely people in the town know about, but it's just there. And you can get into, you know, other questions about you know, colonial violence in the Americas, uh, where you have like, well, how many do are you aware of the you know, the what actually led to, you know, of course, this varies depending on where you are in the in the United States or North and South America in general. But, like, are you aware of how you ended up on the land you ended up on? Or are you aware of, like, the, the Tulsa race riots and stuff like that, that, you know, that violent history mm-hmm. of how, you know, places Become places. The best how, how these places were, were forcibly uh, carved out from what they were previously. Um, and it's I think that's an important part of what we do. It's the sort of modern, the modern realities that come from the decades and centuries prior. Well, I should I, oh that's what all oh, historians move. I'm saying particularly the the, the violent, unpleasant aspects that put, that put us where we are now.
0: Especially speaking about the indigenous peoples of the Americas, we, in general, I would say most of the people I know in higher education, meaning at the teaching at the collegiate level, I think do a fairly good job of complicating that narrative of manifest destiny and of a depopulated wilderness, which, you yeah, know. It's depopulated for a reason, and isn't as depopulated as people like to pretend. It is still so much a part of our national and foundational myths that it. A lot of people don't, to your point, have this consciousness of what happened and what had to happen for these places to be subsumed by the ever-expanding American empire. Yeah,
1: you have to remember, and I'm sure you know this, but and I'm sure most of your viewers would know this but we live in a country whose founding document refers to merciless indian savages whose known rules of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages sexes and conditions that's what our founding document says about the indigenous people of the continent that not that they're savages that they're merciless that they their rules of warfare means they will murder anyone for any reason whatsoever. So the Declaration of Independence is a document that as long as everything else that it does politically and nationally for the United States it enshrined a national um, national doctrine from the jump that the indigenous people of this of this continent aren't humans. That they don't, that or at least that they do not share the one to one values and moralities of us, the wonderful white colonists, and therefore are an existential threat that must be destroyed. That's you know that's pretty much if you want to talk about you know documents that enshrine hatred, yeah, you know that's just, that's on the same level of anti-Semitism in the Bible as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I, I'm not saying like, we have got to take a red pen to the Declaration of Independence, but the historical document It's there. But that's part of the reality. Like, so why did we do this constantly to the indigenous people? Well, because we've always had this view. Um, and when I say we, I mean that you know collectively. I mean, there are very like there's always, I guess, if you want to use a term. From you know Holocaust terminology, because there's always been sort of a right, righteous individuals um, that you know that, that stick up for indigenous peoples. Well, I say you know white righteous individuals, because you know the history of, of indigenous peoples globally is also the history of resistance. You yeah. know there wasn't there wasn't sort of a passive like all right, I guess we'll leave now. Like, that's not how that works. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking. Uh, I probably shouldn't speak too generally uh, because historians shouldn't speak too generally, but what you end up with is most of the thought process of you have to get rid of these people because they're a, they're, an, uh, they're a dying, extinct race. Their time is over. That is time for the, the ever-oppressed white man to take over Colorado. Um, stuff like that. Um, right. Well, I know.
0: mean, and even just yeah, Ben Kiernan in his book on genocide points this out that so much of it is is wrapped up in the dialogue about the land that any time that if you look historically if you can pick out where people were talking about Oh those people are not using the land to its optimum value they're yeah. farming it wrong or doing these other things that are often that is an underlying pretext that is on the way to genocide because you are devaluing that person and claiming that you can do something better than them so therefore you are deserving of their land yeah what what I would what I would
1: always say is like just look at what happened you know we can we can talk about I'm sure we are going to talk about the sort of Post-Civil War um, atrocities and wars, at least in broad strokes. But just yeah. to jump ahead a little bit, you end up most of the, aside from the Apaches and some other minor exceptions, I shouldn't say minor exceptions. You know what I mean? Uh, up until the hostilities with the with the in Apache area lasting roughly until 1924, the United States is done with most of its armed conflict against indigenous people by you know like 1891. You, you've had the ghost dance war that pretty much closes that out. But then you get into the dust bowl in the early 20th century. And I was like, well, how did this happen? And it was like, well, you just threw a bunch of people that had no idea how to maintain this territory, you know, exactly. ge- like, and you, you, you ravaged the, the Buffalo population for both resource needs and, you know, with genocidal intent. And then it's like, well, now you're all starving and it's a famine. I was like, well, you know, what you and you see that same thing right now. If you go on um, uh, international organizations like Survival. Uh, Org, which, which is a uh, pro-indigenous uh, NGO that and they'll maintain like, hey, the, the people that know how to manage resources and land in places like the Amazon and and you know areas of the you know the African savanna and stuff like that in sub-Saharan Africa. They are the, are the people that have been there for centuries and understand, you know, what you, would, what, you would, what you would understand if you had a closer connection to that territory instead of just like, now nah, we'll, just, we'll
0: just destroy everything and then hopefully our children won't starve. Yeah. Well, I mean, in this violence, it is ongoing. I mean, if you look at the violence against indigenous women in uh, Canada and North America... Uh, broadly, you know, this, this, these legacies of colonial violence against Indigenous peoples continue on. Or even in Brazil now, with the continue, with the deforestation of the Amazon and the encroachment upon Indigenous land, it's ongoing. We we can think of it as something that is our often underreported past, but it's also part of our present.
1: It is absolutely, and it never, and it wasn't really a gap. There was no gap, because um, I think that's another myth that there was this sort of like, oh yeah, we we did bad stuff to to the indigenous people, but then the 20th century was great, and then now things are just bad again. Like no, 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 no. It, it was bad then. You have incidents um, throughout the 20th century, uh, probably most infamously. Osage Reign of Terror, which was a series of serial killings that occurred in Osage County, which is a reservation um, in Oklahoma, where the white members of the community, including members, uh, people who married into indigenous families, because at that time, the uh, Osage Nation was probably the, the richest indigenous nation in the country because they struck oil. And they would murder, they would poison and murder and, you know, detonate explosives, killing people, hoping, and in some cases, successfully transferring oil head rights to white hands. And then you have, you know, the ongoing Cold War stuff in Latin America, with the particular vein of it, with the indigenous people. You move into the 1970s, where you have instances of... um, sterilization abuse and forced sterilization, which I consider, at Lemkin would, to be genocide, and now we're we're, we're here, where we are now, where we're looking at, you know, up in Canada, you have indigenous people being ripped off their land um, by government jackboots to put in an oil pipeline, and you have places in, you know,
0: the the Amazon example, the Brazilian example, where you Mm -hmm. have... Even the Standing Rock a few years ago, um, yeah. where we put the pipeline through Holy Lands uh, at Standing Rock, and just to, which we are uh, actually very good at ignoring treaties and these land decrees that we have made that are often, uh, well, not often, almost 99.99% of the time not worth the paper that they were written on as far as the guarantees that we gave indigenous peoples. I
1: obviously, as a historian, I cannot speak you know 99.9% positivity, but from what I know, I am pretty sure the United States has not honored a single treaty it's ever signed with an indigenous nation. I am almost convinced that we yeah. have not maintained a single one in any major capacity.
0: I think perhaps the only, and and I'm getting above my skis here because I am not a, a scholar of indigenous history, but I believe that when the American Indian movement took over Alcatraz, the part of their claim to that was that it was land that had been abandoned by the federal government, meaning it ceded back to the indigenous people, and I'm not. I think that even went to the Supreme Court, but I'm not 100% sure. So, um, I I don't remember
1: the specifics of that but you are right about the the sort of abandoned land aspect of it but i don't remember the whether like i don't even know if i would count that as a treaty at that well point. No, no
0: but it was an attempt to use the treaties against yeah. uh, the yeah. federal government as i guess more where i was going yeah. with that but yeah first thing I want to do is I want to you, when you were talking about the Asagi Reign of Terrorist there's a book on that because I'm not overly familiar with that and would like to read more on it if you know of something.
1: Sure um, the most the book that's out now well the most recent book that's out now and the one that actually kind of dragged me into it, it was David Grand's uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. There are other books on it like I have I'm actually reaching behind me right now and grabbing from the bookshelf this is why you should keep bookshelf close to the computer. So when you're on podcast, you can grab books. Um, I also picked up um, a, a book by a man. Uh, Terry Wilson wrote a book called The Underground Reservation. which tell a similar story. There was a, this isn't really a historical book, but there was another um, kind of like a family memoir called Bloodland um, that was written. And this is, this is one of those topics. Sorry if you hear things in the background. I'm not putting them back on the shelf. But it, this is the topic that I sort of stumbled into when I'm like, I need a book to read on an airplane. Yeah. And I, I started reading it, and I go, this, this is something I want to know more about principally, because sort of on the fringes of my thinking, um, sometimes sometimes I, I go a little bit too far for my own good and my own thought process on this. I think, well, what is the limits of a genocide Hmm. I'm like, and, you know, if you ask someone that sort of has a passing, you know, they go, well, you need the government. I'm like, well, do you? Because I can think of, like, a host of times where it's a militia that, you know, that kill, you know, like, when you have, you know, just to jump around from a a historical example to a historical example, you know, December 1763, uh, in what is now Lancaster, Pennsylvania, there were two massacres um, led by a, a sort of a Scots-Irish sort of death squad called the Paxton Boys, yep. and they killed about 20 people. And what is known about the Conestoga massacres, I call it the Conestoga Genocide because it basically wiped out the last – they wiped out the Conestogas. There were none left, and they were yep. sort of the last major remnant of the, the Susquehannock indigenous people. And I'm like, well, that's a genocide. But the government was against that. They literally told them, don't murder these people. And they did it anyway. So if, if the government says, don't kill them, and a bunch of murderous bastards does it anyway, and that wipes out of people, like, that's not a genocide? That doesn't, that doesn't flow with my with my thinking. So right. to get back to the Osage example, and I will say there is a chance that I am pronouncing that wrong, but I pronounce lots of things wrong. Um, when I'm sitting there, I'm going like, well... You know, how coordinated was this effort? There, there's a string of murders that, um, that the book, that, that Grant's book sort of follows through this one family. And at the end, he's talking to like an archivist. And he was like, no, there were like 80 plus, you know, murders. I forget the exact total. I was like, this was a much wider phenomenon. So I'm sitting there and I'm going like, well, I'm trying to, I'm still working through it. It's, it's one of the many sort of irons in the fire. But it has me thinking. I'm like, well, is it possible to commit genocide through orchestrated serial killings? And I don't have the answer to that question because <laughs> I'm still, it's
0: still it, working it's, through it,
1: yeah. like, and now I mean, it's one of the things where you say it out loud. You're know, like, I just gave away the, the the great article for the person that's going to do this much faster than me. Um, but it's one of it's a question that's been on my mind. it's like, well, where does this go? Like, how? How can you take this topic, um, and how does it factor into when you start to dig into like the really the small scale? Right. And you run I mean, into that's... oh sorry go ahead. No,
0: go ahead finish that.
1: Because oh well, you're gonna and sometimes you run into people like oh like well now you're just you know banalizing the term and you're gonna make it meaningless. And I'm like no no. I've read you know I've read a, a fair amount of you know Raphael Lemkin's own work. I've read um, you know, secondary derivative works directly related to his unfinished work. This is a man that if he was still alive or if he was able to publish what he wasn't able to publish, he'd sound a lot more like me or Ben Kiernan or some of the other you know large scale you know here are the, the genocides of history kind of scholars than he's kind of characterized. You know Lemkin's name only only really comes up around the Holocaust, right? When Which he I, was undeniably a genocide scholar. Definitely, explain who he is for the people who don't know. Raphael Lemkin um, was a, a Polish-born Jew who is um, who was able to escape earlier, really before the Holocaust began. The Holocaust, where the, the rise of Nazism and the rise of Nazism. And in really broad strokes, he was a lawyer, he was um, a professor, and he developed, he always had this interest in mass atrocity in what he would refer to in the aftermath of World War One as sort of crimes of barbarity. He always wanted to find a, a, a term to describe this type of stuff and put it into international law and try to make sure it. It couldn't happen again. And in 1944, he published a, a book, a, a tome, really, called Axis Rule in Occupied Europe. And in one of those chapters, he defines his own term called genocide. And then from there, he sort was sort of off to the races in terms of what he was working on. And he has outlines, like I said, that go back where he's like, well, this is, you know, Bronze Age itself, and this is, he started the modern world in, you know, 1500, so that kind of gives you an idea of, you know, when you're looking at what was going on with colonial Spain and in the Americas, you know, a man in, in, in the sort of early 50s going like, that's the start of modern genocide, and you go, whoa, it changes your perspective of, of this topic historically.
0: Yeah, especially with the, if you also then read the accounts of Marcelo de las Casas, horrors, horrific uh, atrocities that were occurring in the Spanish New World. There's a,
1: yes, and there there are fair, fairly enough of them. Uh, well, it's it, it's endless. Um, yeah. He's done, he's done another example of when I said you know you could pick out these historical sort of righteous figures. When I lecture on that. To my when I did for my my sort of students my freshman well, students last semester the the example that I used I don't remember exactly where it came from it wasn't Las Casas but it was from colonial Nicaragua where they chained four indigenous slaves together in like these sort of neck collars you know you can imagine the kind of you know dehumanizing you know monstrous sort of stuff that humanity has come up with and after they did their, their whatever job they were doing um, I'm going to use the term overseer because there really isn't another term I can think of in this context rather than taking the time to unshackle the, the sort of collars, they just beheaded all for of them because was just easier than yeah. there is a great I shouldn't say great but there is a great analogy that David Sannard makes in his book American Holocaust when he talks about the Spanish silver mines in Peru, which were Mm -hmm. literally like, when you want to say like death camps, uh, he actually compares the numbers of people that would be dying in these mines and these silver processing uh, during the process of sort of forging and processing silver, which produces mercury. Um, he described it as having similar numbers to a rubber plant in Auschwitz.
0: Oh, God, yeah.
1: So, like, this is the, and I, and I always, and I bring that example up to my students, and I bring that up to whenever I can, because there's a sort of disconnect um, that people have historically, even if they know some of this stuff, between, like, colonial genocide and industrial genocide of the 20th century right right and i and that disconnect i always want to erase because like no what you have to understand is especially especially if you're working people to death you are going to do it in the most efficient and brutal way you possibly can and it doesn't matter if it's a you know a plantation in cuba where you're working the local Taínos to death, or if you're in the Andes Mountains, or if you're in Poland, if you, it's, if it's cheaper to work them to death and kill them than
0: feed them, that's what you're going to do.
1: Right, and it's sort of genocide
0: machinery. Yeah, and that's something I try to make clear too to my students when I'm talking about slavery, because um, you know, as Americans we have a very complicated history with slavery because we've never fully accepted how complicit the entire nation was in slavery yeah. and we like to pretend that the civil war was a super clean break it's not but that's another conversation when well look I, at- we can actually stay on
1: that conversation if you want real quick because at least to make one point i know this is um i appeared on the outlaw history podcast with um dr waitman Baron, I really hope I didn't pronounce that wrong but he makes the case yeah I might have but he's a he's a genocide scholar and he, uh, he's a Holocaust scholar yeah. principally uh, but he made a case um, where he says hey plantations were slave were, were slave camps they yeah. were they were slave labor camps
0: yeah and we do not think of that like that at all in the United States Yeah, not very many of us do. But uh, to your point about the industrialized killing in these camps when you're working people to death, if you look at sugar plantations, especially the ones in uh, Cuba, as you mentioned, where the average lifespan for a slave was seven years and it was cheaper to work one to death and buy another one than to let them – instead of letting them have families, instead of letting them have time to to plant crops and and feed themselves, you just work them to death because you can replace them so easily through the international slave trade. I mean – uh, there's a reason that's called the Mafa or the African Holocaust because it lasts forever and so many people died through the Middle Passage, through being overworked, or were treated as less than human beings for mm-hmm. centuries through their bloodline. In the, in the case of the United States specifically, you know that. And, and actually, that's something I want to circle back to. Was speaking to the indigenous is the Trail of Tears and how the, the first great sin of the United States, the the genocide against indigenous people, was then compounded by African slavery.
1: Yes. There's a, there's a great article that just came out, and I had it on my tab, and now it's gone, but by um, uh, Jeffrey Osler, who is a, who is a professor of... Pacific history focusing on indigenous people recently came out with a book surviving genocide, which is just sort of, I believe it's the first of a two volume piece. I think it takes, I think the book takes you from, yeah, it takes you from sort of the American revolution, the bleeding Kansas, and then the next book will sort of move on. But there is a sort of complex interwoven, uh, mutual, am trying to get the right way to put this. Um, when you talk about what happened on this continent to this indigenous people, and then you talk about what occurred to the people who were brought here forcibly and their descendants, it's it's a nest of a thousand different you know, similarities, but also contradiction. Yeah. Um, it's because it's it's really complex, especially because these are two white men talking about this. But if you want to sort of break down a lot of it, well, from a certain point of view, the descendants of, of black slaves who became, you know, free African-Americans, they are as they are also complicit in what you would call settler colonialism against, you know, indigenous peoples. And also, if you look at the post Civil War wars, I know you guys talked about you and Troy talked about sort of galvanized Yankees, these sort of mm-hmm. former Confederates. They're like, all right, cool, go fight, go fight out west, and we won't, you know, keep you in a camp. But you also have the phenomenon the historically important and culturally important phenomenon of Buffalo soldiers yeah. where you had uh, African-Americans, freemen and then their, their sons and, and what have you going out with the exact same mission. You have this really, it, it's really, it, it's complicated and, it, and it, it's like, like, yes. Okay. So we're going to have f- uh, free African-Americans and then we're going to have former Confederates. We're going to send them pretty much to the exact same situation to accomplish the exact same long-term goal like that's that's very complex to wrestle with from a certain i don't want to use woke as a pejorative but it's it's, it's more complicated than just how it is sometimes oh, yeah. represented it's, it's a rat's
0: nest of contradictions well definitely and you can also add on into that rat's nest the the you know examples like the cherokee um, the five civilized nations before they were forced to to move out west they had African slaves yeah. so and there are traditions of slavery that are indigenous both to Africa and to the the Americas that and in some ways I almost feel that it's a shame that we have to use the same word because the, the severity and the type of the slavery is so gradiated and different depending on where you're looking at when um, that I think mm-hmm. Sometimes applying the same term to it does it a disservice. But to your point, it is an incredibly complex and tangled thing that we have to tease out and not try and not speak too generically about. I guess yeah. that's a bad term, but that, that's the <laughs> right now.
1: Well, we're dealing with the limitations of, of the English language. That's it, like like we only have like most of the other terms because how we've how we view these topics. It's one of the things we're like. We can't kind of we can't call it something else because then you're creating a euphemism. So exactly. we're kind of stuck with it's like it was it was well, like the trailblazers. When I when I lectured on the trailblazers, I I include the perspective of women, but I also included the perspective, if I'm remembering correctly, of a. I think it's an African American woman who is was a, I believe she was a slave who is also who was also subjected hmm. to the, to the Trail of Tears being perpetrated. Yeah. So it's, so now you're like, okay, so there, they were, so are, were the slaves that are owned by Cherokee people also victims of the Trail of Tears? Yes. But they were also victims of, you know, the institution of slavery. You could, you know, the, when you start to break down like this is why I wish people would stop thinking about history in terms of the sort of nice, clean gradient charts that end up on the sort of right side of Wikipedia pages, where you have, like, these people were all on this yeah. side and these people were all on this side, and they were in opposition, and then at the end, X amount of people died and X amount of battles were lost. Right. It, no, totally. It, it's always more complex, because in a lot, especially if you're dealing with with mass violence and you're dealing with elements of identity and nations and nations being built up and nations being destroyed, you're dealing with people who are both perpetrator and victim. You're dealing with people who are both victim and bystander and perpetrator. And depending on where they are in the sort of spectrum of chaos happening in that particular time, I'm looking at you, Poland, you could be all three of those things at any
0: given time. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's why I think that uh, Michelle Moyd's book, Violent Intermediaries, which looks at the Askari in Africa and the colonization of Africa, which are indigenous peoples who side with Europeans for their own reasons, I mean, you know, for their own gains. And I think that there is a lot that could be done with that. Um, you talked about the Buffalo Soldiers. That could be considered a, a form of that as well, but also like Apache Scouts or – and because, and, I mean, that's another thing is we often, when we're talking about indigenous populations, we tend to lump them all into one thing, not recognizing the vast disparity of beliefs and practices amongst these various tribes. Absolutely, and I, I, I try to hammer this home, and
1: sometimes I don't do it as well as I should. Because um, you know, both of us exist in the sort of the sphere of Twitter, which means you have you have this many characters. We doubled it a few years ago, but it's still not big enough. Um, so you have to sort of limit yourselves. But the one thing I'd want people to understand when reading about uh, indigenous history and understanding, particularly history in the United States, is if you're going to talk about the the Navajo. And the Apaches, is to have two examples of, of tribes that are geographically similar, uh, geographically, you know, where they are similar. Right. Oh, you should talk about them like you talk about the Spanish and the French. Mm. Like they share a border. Right. And they may have extremely similar uh, aspects of this, that, and the other, but you're talking about two nations. You're talking about human societies that developed in such a distinct way that they themselves consider themselves different. So treat them differently. Or at least recognize that difference. So that's why I hate the term Native American genocide. Because it puts it all together and it's like, well, you know, that was our great that and slavery were our two great sins. And I'm like, no, you don't have it under, you don't even, I don't even know. I'm, one of the reasons I started, um, well, I'll, I'll plug it later, but one of the reasons I decided to do the Patreon that I started a, a, like a week ago was because I wanted to create what, what Trey named the exhaustive list of every sort of you know anti-indigenous you know military campaign. I don't know them all and I've been doing this for 10 years. You know, I was in high school and then community college and then you know, whatever, but so the so one, like, there's like, oh, there was this one big crime. And I was like, no, there were like millions not right. millions of individual genocides but like millions of crimes against hundreds of nations and when you just say oh yeah there was one big Native American genocide I'm like you've just erased 500 nations plus you yeah. just erased them from existence in this sort of blase pretend recognition
0: that's a very <laughs> good point point. That is a very good point now uh, I want to since you brought that up is this only going to be North American, uh, like America, American, or is it, are you planning to do the entire Americas? Because um, America well, itself would be daunting enough, but expanding it to the Americas, oh my gosh! It would be, it would be focused on
1: the, the United States and our actions within the borders of the United States. Um, I have not decided yet uh, what what. The term borders in that context means it is very possible that I will include uh, the sort of 19th century, post-19th century, what was going on in our imperial holdings of like uh, Hawaii. But generally speaking, um, when I put this list together um, and I work on it over time, I will keep it um, as what you would refer to as Native Americans within the borders of the... United States, and I have um, other plans for articles and material uh, that will also that I'll also put together, which is separate from this whole list project.
0: So there there will be points where I talk about other things. But... Sure, uh, that sounds very interesting. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show description, and, and I'll ask you again at it at the end of the recording. Cool. Um... So the one thing I wanted to actually talk to you about because. <laughs> is not like now we're into it. <laughs> I know.
1: We'll, 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 I know. You'll you'll trim this down and we'll figure it out. Oh yeah. Um that. and then tell me to shut up and go home. Like what do you What's like the, you're no, her, Like stop talking to me. Go home. No, hey, I wanna so, uh, we could maybe end here if you want. We could sort of wrap this
0: up with this topic. Sure. Okay. Um well, look, what I was gonna say is Okay. This is this is a fascinating. There are several things that I would like to get to, so I would like to have you back on uh, sometime in the future to talk more specifically about certain things, such as the creation of ethnic killing as a euphemism because of the problematics of genocide being a legal definition as well. But anyway, go on to the topic that you wanted to speak of. Okay, now you
1: said, you said that's a much better topic. <laughs> Not necessarily. Um, okay, well, maybe maybe you can maybe we can hit both. Um, the thing I wanted to actually talk to you about, because we're, we're we're recording this on you know Monday, and I think yesterday and the day before, eugenics returned to Twitter. Yes. Richard Dawkins. Yes, and you know he's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm against this on moral grounds, but it works for pigs, so it can work for people. No. And I and I kind of wanted to talk to you because, and I and raise the question: Did it ever really leave? Like, everyone's just sort of shocked. I'm like, Eugenics is back. I'm like, well, Eugenics they didn't really go anywhere. No. It, I it, don't think it did. Like, it, it's always sort of lingered. Um, and, it's, and it's, bipartisan isn't the right word, but you know what I mean? Like, I hear stuff coming from, you know, the most extreme climate advocates um, that that scares me. You know, like about the when they start, sometimes they spread you know, population boom or population bomb rhetoric. Yeah. The same rhetoric that I wrote about when I wrote my thesis on, you know, sterilization abuse in Puerto Rico, where they're like there's too many people. You know, we have to, you know, sterilize X amount of people and
0: I'm like, that's hold on, who gets to decide that? Yeah, the, the whole um, combination of the scientific racism of eugenics with Malthusian fears of population growth is a very scary thing. Yeah. But, I mean, and I think, and unfortunately, uh, you know, there's there's two great books. Um, Khalil Muhammad, is that the name? Um, let me double check that i actually don't recognize the title for so now i'm intrigued the condemnation of uh, is the condemnation it is khalil muhammad the condemnation of blackness race crime and the making of modern urban america oh. is a great book that looks at the way that uh in the progressive era that uh, it's not necessarily full-on eugenics but a lot of these ideas creep into the social sciences and If you look at any of the discourse in criminal justice about uh, Bloomberg, for example, his incredibly racist remarks, well, we can just Xerox a copy of the description of an offender and put all our police in brown communities. It has ties to that. And then there's also uh, Nancy Rose Hunt's book, uh, Colonial Lexicon, which talks about um, how missionaries to Africa in in exporting – race science there and just like oh well if you look at the difference in lung capacity or birthing practices and all this stuff i mean it is so deeply entrenched yeah into the the fact and that's something that i think uh, we tend to think of science as completely partial and neutral in its application and what it says but we have to remember that scientists are people too and bring their own biases into their research and and Hopefully it is wetted out, embedded out in the replication of experiments. But if you have something so deeply entrenched as to quick muscle twitch versus slow muscle twitch or any other seemingly innocuous racial difference, quote unquote, in science that stays in that is indebted in the system. And I think that there are certainly elements of eugenics that are like that as well to this day.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were in the United States, and I already, I already alluded to this, alluded to this a bit earlier. Sterilizing people, black and brown people, in the 1970s, yeah. without their, without their consent. That's on top of the, you know, the, the, the books upon books that you could probably write or that have been written about, you know, the 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 medical mistreatment. Uh, historically and contemporarily of, of, of black and brown, uh, black and brown bodies and that's in the same sort of it's it's sort of the, it's the fruit of the same poison tree because exactly, you're yeah. you're you're making decisions from and it's and and i've I've said this enough on Twitter but I'll, I'll say it again here eugenics is a genocidal ideology there is a misconception that some people have, because it shows up in the Nazis, and they go, the Nazis took this and twisted, it, and they go, no, 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 no. The Nazis played that straight. Race science played straight is genocidal, because it says those people over there, whether they be you know black or brown or gay or disabled or or. Jewish, you just invent an entirely new racial category in which to inflict upon people, whatever you could come up with. They are a threat to the state, they are a weakening of the gene pool, and we have to destroy them because that's what forced sterilization is. It's, it's you know, Lemkin recognized this um, himself, he's, he's on record of it in a, a New York Times piece. Um, so this isn't, like, new scholarship. This is, mm-hmm. you know, or, uh, late 1940s, um, 50s kind of thinking from him, where you go, you could commit genocide without bullets. And that's what, you know, in a lot of ways, sterilization abuse is. So people was like, well, eugenics just wants to, you know, keep these bad people from, and I'm like, no, who gets to decide who the bad people are?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Who are they? Why? Why are they usually wealthy and white? <gasps> right. <laughs> Like, hmm, I, th- I think I noticed a pattern here, <laughs> and that just, you know, you could co- you could take that back and like, oh, that's just, that's just an extension of the you know centuries of empire, which is you know the same exact deal. Yeah.
0: Well, and you know, it's it's something that I love my anthropologist friends, but we have to remember that all, the the discipline of anthropology was very instrumental in that, not that other disciplines weren't. So let me say that, but giving an an excuse to why colonialism was legitimized and colonialism itself is a genocidal project. uh, As much as we say was,
1: I believe, I really don't want to be wrong about this because I know there's, I know there's a book on the Dakota war. That I think was published in 2016. I don't own it because of reasons, but I believe it was published in 2016. If it wasn't, it was published fairly recently, like in that sort of same vein. That refers to the conflict. Now, this is a you know, this is you know, 1862. Yeah, uh, yeah the War of War, 1862. It occurred within the confines of the uh, Civil War. If you want to get someone on to talk about this. Um, John Legg is, is absolutely great about oh, this, yeah. uh, and, but the book I believe refers to the, now this is a book written by a historian at a, I believe it's the University Press, published in 2016, refers to the conflict as like a clash. I believe he actually uses the term "Red Civilization," mm. and I I believe that that with the University Press, I might be wrong, but These, this stuff isn't necessarily gone when you want to talk about like the, like the worst elements of, you know, the humanities. Yeah. Like it's still around. It's, you know, it's like, I think the kids are all right. Like I think the younger people that are coming up and most of the people, most people that get, get it, get it, but it's going to be a while, and it still might not change because you have fucking Dinesh D'Souza and Bill O'Reilly, who just produced garbage. And then you're like, hey, yeah. well, you know, you want to pay $20 at a bookstore to read about, you know, why Lincoln was the greatest president ever, despite the fact that he was more complex than anyone wants to admit? You know, I don't know. No. Like he said, the, you have to sort of strangle <laughs> American exceptionalism in its crib. And <laughs> it's kind of hard to do that when there was an entire apparatus designed to keeping it on life support. Without a doubt. Uh, That's a nice cheery
0: place to end. Like I, I think so. I think so. Uh, well, I have one final question for you. Sure. And that is, what are your future plans? I know that you are currently adjunct in your team. Do you plan to pursue your PhD, or are you satisfied with having your master's, or what, where do you plan to go from here?
1: I would like to get my PhD. Uh, that is my dream, That is the, like, I am a guy, like, you know that meme of the, like, the dog in the middle of a fire, and it's like, this is fine. (laughs) Yes, I am a man. I am a a man staring out, like, I follow, you know, I follow you, not that you really, I don't think you've actually really complained about it, but I follow a lot of people that are in the sort of PhD student, PhD candidate, you know, um, academia sort of cycle. And I watch this, and I go, that's on fire, but I want to be there. That's the best way I could describe it. Is I don't want to do anything else. So I look at, you know, the sort of terrifying
0: numbers, and I'm like, yeah. I mean, but I need this. The, the job numbers are horrific. I mean, quite honestly, but I knew that coming in. So, yeah. and I am lucky in that, unlike uh, a lot of our friends on Twitter that you've mentioned, I haven't had a bad experience in grad school. I mean, I've had some very bad things happen with deaths in the family and, and stuff like that, but my department has, for the most part, been very supportive. My faculty have been understanding and are great allies, so I cannot complain about my experience at Marquette University from that aspect. Yeah. Your mileage may vary at other places, of course. Um, yeah, so
1: I, I want to get my PhD. I, I believe that I joke, I joke around, and people like I joke around with friends and family. This is the one thing I know how to do. I don't know how to do anything else, because if I start over, I don't have anything. So that's what I want to do. I want it's it will most likely be in history, uh, because I Mm -hmm. I have have friends of mine, former members of my grad school cohort, who are like, well, you can go here and get your PhD in genocide studies, and I'm like, well, I don't want that, because I already covered that base. Right. Like, I'm sure, you know, a a couple of more years in in genocide studies would be great, and I get to figure out, you know, this, that, and the other, but I know how to be a genocide scholar. Like, with respect to that, you know, that that PhD program, I know how to be a genocide scholar. So, yeah, I want to get my PhD where, I don't know, Um, there's other aspects of my life that I'm not going to get into for public consumption where I'm sort of thinking about where I might end up. I, I do believe that I want to get a, a, a PhD, and I, I would like to continue being a an academic. I think yeah. I procrastinate way too much for my own good, but I enjoy it. Um, so that we all do. That's honest. the long term plan. Um, consequences be damned
0: <laughs> of what I would like um, to do. Well, that is the one piece of advice I would give for anybody who's considering grad school, even if it's just for a master's. But you know, uh, continuing on to PhD definitely. Make sure that the the reason that you're doing it are important to you. That in some sense you are doing it for yourself, because it is a lot of work and it is a lot of hassle and it's tough. But it is also very rewarding if you are going at it for the right reasons i i know some people who've entered phd programs because they were like well i don't know what else to do that seems to be the natural thing so i guess i'll do it it'll delay having to decide on a job for another five six years well, that's the entirely wrong reason to do it yeah um, so it sounds like that you are in a good place and know that you want to do it so i i hope that you do i hope that you do go on and and pursue a phd well thank you and you know we're
1: we're, we're friends, so we will obviously keep in touch for oh, yes, whatever whatever mistakes I make. <laughs> uh, and I will be back on to tell the wonderful viewers of the Evoking History podcast of all my wondrous mistakes uh, as we move forward, hopefully.
0: Yes, well, I definitely want you back on because there are several other questions and conversations that I think we can have around genocide. We barely scratched the surface today, despite the fact that I think we had a very good conversation and discussed a whole lot of things.
1: Yes, I, I there oh, there's so much more. Like I like I'm I don't wanna like pull back the curtain but to fight imposter syndrome I keep notes relative just so I remember things. And I wrote like two pages and we stuck like a third of it and I'm like, This is exactly how most of the things I do work out when <laughs> over plan. I would absolutely
0: love to come back
1: whenever whenever you will have me.
0: Well, it will not be that long. I'm sure that I will have you on again as the summer approaches. Um, because, there are, like I said, there are several things that I want to discuss. And i should actually probably have you on after I present – I'm actually going to, in June, the uh, conference for the Society of Historians of American Foreign Relations and presenting on a panel on genocide. So I will oh, cool. have you on after that to discuss – what I learned there, and also just more lovely conversation on an incredibly depressing topic.
1: Yes, uh, <laughs> um, it's it's, it, it's depressing, but it's also what's the, what's the best way to do it? It's like it's a learned it's a learned process where where you just sort of like you you do, you move into. When, when you deal with violence, it's not just something you just decide to do. It, it's something you no. do and then slowly get comfortable with and then stranger, the parties ask you what you do and then they just go, oh, and then they walk away. <laughs> yeah,
0: with the ashen look on their face because they don't know how to process yeah. it. But yeah, it's, it's also like, a, a very important thing. I believe so. Alright, so tell us what your Twitter is and what this Patreon you mentioned.
1: Okay, so my Twitter handle is at deck of carter d-e-c-k of c-a-r-t-e-r don't ask me what it means i thought it was clever when i made it in 2013 and it was not clever um and that's my twitter handle i try to talk a lot about genocide and human rights but sometimes it's just me screaming at the president and it's the primary going on so everything else is on fire so i'm trying to focus on the thing that i promise people but your mileage may vary Uh, And I also, like I said earlier, I started a Patreon uh, that I entitled the American Genesee Race Project, and that is my hope of having some lovely patrons work on supplementing my income so I can work on some educational resources, Uh, the principal one being what I call the exhausting list where I hope to have a list, probably some sort of Excel sheet or something like that, where I break down historically what I would uh, refer to as actions by the United States military and their proxies against indigenous people. I will probably start that list a little bit before uh, the American Revolution. I'm thinking of starting it with... Uh, the Conestogas of 1763, because that's one of those examples of the sort of frontier in that sort of pre-revolutionary period. But it will probably go from the 1760s to the early 20th century. And I hope to put together that list, but that involves research and time and stuff like that. And when you're a working adjunct, young academic trying to figure out a bunch of other stuff, it helps if there was support. So if you are interested, it's linked on my, my Twitter. It's my pinned tweet. And the direct link would be patreon.com mcarteragp
0: AGP. That's the American Genesis Project. And I will, of course, put all that in the um, description section of this episode when it goes live. And we'll also tweet those out when I tweet out this episode. Awesome. All right. You. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you, Michael, for coming on and ha- and having this wonderful conversation.
1: If only you could release a four-hour episode. I
0: mean, <laughs> theoretically, I could. I don't know how many people would listen. I don't I know
1: if people would be like, I don't know if I want to watch these guys anymore. It's, it's becoming <laughs> self-indulgent. Yes. Um, no, but but absolutely,
0: just please. I I am I, I love talking to my dear friend. Uh, as do I. That's one of the reasons I started this podcast is to to not only get even though I haven't talked about any of my scholarship, uh, but to get my friend's scholarship out there because there are really important things. History matters, especially at, in the current political climate, and the more what little bandwidth I can give it in broadcasting it out there, I feel compelled to do. You're, you're doing a great job,
1: and I, loved, I love what I what I've been hearing so far.
0: And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Evoking History podcast.